It's Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. This is God's Word. Let us give it careful attention. John writes to us, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus, was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet saying, Write what you see in a book and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamum, to Thyatira, and to Sardis, and to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. Then I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And on turning, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like furnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last, the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Write, therefore, the things that you have seen, those things that are, and those things that are to take place after this. As for the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand, and the seven golden lampstands, the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. This is God's Word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you again for your Word. We ask now that your Spirit would come and reveal to us the great truth of the Gospel, that we would behold Christ, and as we behold Him, that our hearts would be strengthened in faith, that for those that know you, we would be encouraged all the more by what you have done and what you are doing. And for those who know you not, where there is no faith, that your spirit would come and break down those walls that resist the truth of your gospel, that you would breathe new life into them and they might come in faith and repentance and know you and enjoy your mercy and goodness forevermore. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So one of the things we struggle with when it comes to the book of Revelation is the issue of relevance for us today, uh, even as Christians in the church. I mean, we ask that question really regarding every part of the Bible. How is this relevant to me? How does it uh, impact me in my life today? And it is often easier in other parts of the Bible, admittedly, to see those connections of our lives to God's truth, and it becomes very personal and practical to us. I think we experienced that when we went through the Ten Commandments. We could see very much how they uh, related to us in our lives today. 
But when it comes to the book of Revelation, it seems so strange, so far removed from us. It feels like another world. I mean, what do all these images, these fanciful, fanciful descriptions of beasts and dragons and angels and fire and judgment and heavenly beings and the throne room of heaven, what does all that have to do with us today, right now, in this moment? I mean, what do lampstands and stars uh, mean for me? How do they impact me in my life right now? What do angels and bowls of wrath and trumpets have to do with my worries and anxieties and struggles with sin and, and suffering? How do these things relate to us? Well, as strange and fantastic as John's heavenly visions are, I do believe they are incredibly helpful and relevant to us as believers today as they were for those in John's day. You see, the visions God gives John are the big 40,000-foot view of what God has been doing from the start of history, what he is doing right now, and what he will do in this world. You see, we often just look at our lives from that ground level, right? But if you take a plane and you fly up above the earth, you see so many things that you don't see. Uh, you see them in a different way. All of the houses and the cars on the roads and life happening. That's what Revelation does. It's the big meta-narrative of God's redemptive story, a story of his love and mercy, his grace and justice, and it is very much relevant to you right now. It's relevant to you in your life because your story, which might seem like a little micro-narrative, what is happening to you in your family, your life, your job, what you're studying, all of that is part of God's great big story that he has been writing since he created this world. And that begins to emerge for us today, I believe, in our text this morning. When we, as we come into this text, what we are coming to is the first of John's visions in the book of Revelation. And as we consider this vision it's helpful to keep in mind what the purpose of the book of Revelation is. Revelation is not uh, primarily about the future, though it does speak of the coming of Christ once again. But it is very much about what God has done and what He is doing right now to build His kingdom, which will be completed when Christ returns. Revelation is a letter from God to the church, calling her to an enduring faith which will prevail even through the storms of life, suffering, persecution. And it is also a warning to not fall away from Christ, especially when this world is hostile towards the church, towards God's people. So this first vision then is in line with that overall purpose. Here, the big idea is that God is teaching us that he, he gives the church the vision that we need to faithfully fulfill our mission as his people, even under all the uh, sorrow and suffering that we might experience in this life, in this world. And so we do not then need to fear what is happening, but faithfully live 
for Christ. And there are three things I believe we see here. We see the trouble with tribulation, the true vision of Christ, and the trustworthy word of Christ. So first of all, let's think about the trouble of tribulation. John begins in verse 9 by showing us his pastoral heart. He says, I, John, your brother and partner in the tribulation and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are in Jesus was on the island called Patmos on account of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. These words of John are words of a caring shepherd to his flock. He wants to relate to the church in a way that shows empathy and concern and love. Notice John doesn't mention his apostolic credentials, though he certainly could have done that and would have been right in doing so. He doesn't even use the title by which he calls himself in the Gospel of John, uh, that being the disciple whom Jesus loved. He does not mention um, that he was the one to whom Jesus entrusted the care of his mother while Christ hung dying upon the cross, nor does John bring up the fact that he was the first to behold the risen Christ. No, he simply says, I, John, your brother and partner. He wants us to know that he's one of us. I'm with you. I'm a disciple of Jesus Christ just like you. I am a Christian. I am a believer in the gospel. And just like you and I, John knows what suffering is. He knows the trouble of tribulation. You see, John's experience is your experience. And if you're part of the church by faith in Christ, you and John are connected and we're connected in three things, he says here, tribulation, the kingdom, and patient endurance. And all of these are tied together to Jesus. So he says that he's our partner in tribulation in Jesus. He's our partner in the kingdom in Jesus. And he's our partner in patient endurance in Jesus. So being united to Christ is a cause for tribulation, but also being united to Christ is what makes a person part of God's kingdom. And being united to Christ calls for patient endurance in this world. Now, tribulation is trouble involving direct suffering or hardship. And John's tribulation that he mentions came because he was a disciple of Jesus Christ. He was proclaiming Christ. He was part of the kingdom. And we should be careful to note when he speaks of his tribulation here, he's speaking of a present situation, not some future great tribulation, but what really is happening in the world right now. I think we look at our world and we say, yep, John, that's exactly what's going on. There's great troubling tribulation, and it has been happening because of the sin that exists in this world. See, one of the problems with the book of Revelation um, for some people is they take a highly futurist approach to it. They see the kingdom of Christ as something that does not exist yet. But as we have noticed, it exists now. It is not complete, but it is here now. But it exists side by side with tribulation. And so John sees himself as part of Christ's kingdom, just as the entire church is already part of Christ's kingdom. But he also sees himself experiencing tribulation in this world, just as the entire church with the entire world is suffering tribulation in this very moment. 
And because of that, it requires on the part of God's people, as John says, patient endurance in Christ. Another way to say that is enduring faith. Enduring faith in Jesus Christ that perseveres in order to enjoy the fullness of the blessings that God promises to us in the gospel. So John's tribulation, of course, came through his exile ship, and as he writes this book, uh, on the Isle of Patmos. And Patmos, it's a little island, it's a little rocky island in the Aegean Sea. During the time of the Roman Empire, it was used for mining, but it was also a penal colony, and there's some evidence that they used those who were prisoners to work within those mines. John was a prisoner on Patmos because of his preaching of the gospel. And that situation then seems hardly like the victorious promise of an eternal kingdom. But here's the thing about the kingdom, which we've said already. The kingdom of Christ exists side by side with the tribulations of this world. So there is suffering that we experience, but there is also joy. See, another way to think about Tribulation is to think about the labor that a mother goes through when she is going to be giving birth. There is great pain in the delivery of a child, great suffering, but there's also great joy about the coming of a new baby. And eventually, the pain is gone, and all that remains is the joy. That's how Jesus' kingdom currently exists. There is sorrow, there is pain, but there's also joy. And when Christ returns, there will only be joy. And so we do know, as God's people, the, the blessing, the joy that comes from being part of God's covenant people. We experience real peace in the fact that our sins are forgiven in Christ but boy, we still suffer tribulation. We still have troubles. We still sin and we're sinned against and we feel the weight and the consequences of that. Now, we might not suffer the same kind of tribulation as John did and directly suffer for our faith, but we are troubled by the many tribulations we see in this world. In fact, the general meaning of the Greek word that's translated tribulation, it communicates the idea of being crushed or pressed down upon by a great weight. And there are many, many things we'd say, yeah, they crush me, they bury me, they press upon me and make it hard to breathe. Now, sometimes they can be great big things like death and war and diseases that seem to have no cure or the loss of abilities we once enjoyed or maybe financial insecurity or the grave consequences of sin. But many times, the things that crush us are the little things that add up, the never-ending little weights that come upon us because we live in a fallen, sin-corrupted world. It's appropriate we call it the daily grind because it feels like we're being ground under a mortar stone. Those seemingly small stresses and anxieties that add up and pile on the weight of living in this fallen world. There's the working of the same job perhaps and not finding any delight in it, feeling conflicts between our colleagues 
words that are spoken that hurt, words that we say that hurt others. Parents feeling the constant demand of trying to train their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord and feeling the weight of this world pressing against them. And then there are those besetting sins, those things we struggle with that keep pricking us with guilt, eating at our conscious conscience, telling us that we are a failure. There are those intrusive thoughts that you wish would just go away, but they seem to keep coming to you and calling out to you. Yeah, that's the troubling tribulation of the world. It's a world that is groaning and longing for the completion of Christ's kingdom. And when we experience that tribulation that troubles us, the only thing that carries us through is an enduring faith in Christ. We need the patient endurance that John speaks of. But how do you get that? Where does that come from? Well, it doesn't come from you. It's given to you by the grace of God. That's the wonderful thing. You see, your faith in Jesus endures, even though at times it might seem that you are barely clinging on to the truth of Christ. Your faith will endure because God promises that it will. He is the author and the finisher of your faith. He is the guarantee that you will persevere until the fullness of Christ's kingdom is made a reality all over this world. And we see God's providential grace that sustains John in the midst of his tribulation in verse 10, where he tells us that on the Lord's day, on Sunday, while he's worshiping, he hears a loud voice that was like a trumpet. Why a trumpet? What does a trumpet do? Well, it gets your attention. You can't help but hear it. You cannot ignore it. It is loud. It blasts forth. It commands your attention. Now, what John experiences here is not normative for all Christians. We should not expect God to blast forth an audible trumpet to us in any way. Um, this is an act of God's special revelation. You see, the Scriptures were still being recorded. God was still giving us His Word. And now that we have the completed Word of God, we don't need visions anymore. In fact, the Bible says we have a more certain word of prophecy, of truth. It is the complete Word of God. We have the whole picture. But here what we see is the work of God inspiring His Word bringing it about. But just because God doesn't come to us in visions like He did to John, it doesn't mean that the Word of God is not a trumpet. It still is. It still calls out to us. It still blasts its truth at our hearts. It compels us to listen and like a trumpet that heralds the coming of a king, so the word of God heralds to us to look to Jesus so that we might have the faith that endures. What kind of vision of Christ do you need to have enduring faith? You need a true vision of Christ. And that's what John paints for us here. John turns to hear who is speaking 
And who he sees is both familiar to him, but also unfamiliar. I mean, John has seen Jesus before physically on this earth. He walked with him. He ate with him. He, he slept in the same uh, homes or inns with him. He saw Jesus beaten and bloodied, hanging upon the cross. He saw his glorified body after the resurrection. But this vision of Jesus, well, it's different than any he has seen before. He sees Christ Jesus as Jesus wants to be seen now in all of his glory. And that's what John describes for us in verses 12 through 16. He gives us a word picture of Jesus, not a literal physical description of what Christ looks like, but the words that John uses are symbolic. They point us to who Jesus is other than what he actually looked like. This is the heavenly Christ as he is right now at the right hand of the Father ministering to us his church. And Jesus is portrayed in three ways, as a heavenly priest, as the great judge, and as the final ruler of his kingdom. So as a heavenly priest, we see that in verses 12 through 13, where John says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, the golden sash around his chest. Again, this is a symbolic language. In fact, it is a fulfillment of an earlier prophecy we see in the book of Zechariah and chapter 4. And there in Zechariah 4, God encourages Israel, his people in the Old Testament, with a vision of the rebuilt temple. And we see there, in that vision, in Zechariah 4, a golden lampstand. And it has seven, yes, seven bowls or lamps on it filled with oil that would be lit. And next to that lampstand are two olive trees which continually supply oil to the seven lamps so that they continue to burn. The lampstand in Zechariah is the lampstand that was part of the temple furnishings, giving light to the temple as the priests went about the worship at that time. And the lampstand is figurative of the whole temple. You see, when one part of the temple furnishings is spoken of, it often represents the entire temple. Furthermore, the temple itself, by extension, represents faithful Israel, the people of God's covenant grace under the old administration of that covenant of grace. And the point of Zechariah's vision is that God's people would one day be filled with the oil of God's presence to empower them to shine forth the light of God's truth and mercy to the world. Now you come back to John's vision here in Revelation 1 that is a fulfillment of that. And John tells us uh, that Jesus explains to him the meaning of all this in verse 20 and that the seven lampstands represent the seven historical churches to whom John is writing this letter, to whom it is being sent. But as we learned last week, or a couple weeks ago actually, the number seven is symbolic. And those seven churches uh, simply represent the entire church because seven is the number of fulfillment. This is a message to the entire church 
across all time and in all lands. And the church then, as we see here, is being built by God in fulfillment of Zechariah 4. It is the new temple of God where his presence will dwell. And just as Israel in the Old Testament was to be a light to the nations, so now the church as the expanded people of God, both Jews and Gentiles, have the mission of shining forth the light of God, the gospel into the world. That is the mission of all who know Christ. But how is the church to do that when you face a world full of troubling tribulation? Well, she can do that because she's empowered by Christ, the heavenly priest. You see, priests in the Old Testament, one of the things they were to do in that temple with that lampstand was to keep the lamps burning. They would trim the wicks, but they would also keep them filled with oil. And John tells us in his vision here that he sees Christ where? In the midst of the lampstands. Jesus is functioning as a priest, ministering to his church, keeping the lights burning. In fact, we see that priestly description in the garments he wears, as, Paul said, or as John says in, uh, in verse 13, a long robe with a golden sash around his waist. Those are priestly garments. So Jesus is pouring oil that will empower the church to fulfill her mission to be that light to the world, to proclaim the gospel amongst the darkness of tribulation. And what is the oil? Well, it is the Holy Spirit. Just as those two olive trees in Zechariah's earlier vision represented the Spirit of God's presence pouring oil into the seven lamps. And so the vision we need to have enduring faith, then, is to see Christ as our heavenly priest who empowers us as his people to live faithfully as followers of him, even in the face of difficulty and hostility. He comes by our side. He is our comforter in tribulation. Secondly, a true vision of Christ that will build up an enduring faith is to see him as the great judge. And we see that in verses 14 through 15. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like furnished brass refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. Of course, this hair, white like wool and snow, uh, pictures purity and truth. Christ as a judge is always true in how he judges. In fact, this language comes from Daniel chapter 10, which speaks of one who is called the Ancient of Days, who sits as a throne, on a throne with white hair. It is a picture of God as a judicial figure who renders judgment upon all people. And he brings about the deliverance of his people from all who would oppress them. Eyes like flaming fire speak to Christ's all-knowing gaze that penetrates into our hearts and sees all things. What does fire do? But it illuminates and it reveals, it exposes, it drives away darkness before its light and it melts away cold with its heat. 
And Christ, this pure judge, sees all that the world does. Nothing is hid from his eyes. There is no sin that is a secret before him. He knows the very thoughts and intents of every person on this earth. The feet like furnished bronze represent authority and power and strength to judge and to carry out his judgments. And this voice as the roar of many waters is a metaphor for declarations of judgment as waves crash upon a shore. So the judgment of God crashes down upon those who would continue in unrighteousness and sin and rebellion against him and refuse to fall upon his mercy and his grace and submit to him in repentance and faith. Is he to have a faith that endures We need Jesus as that judge, the judge of all the earth. Because as judge, it means that every wrong that seems to go unanswered in this life will be answered. It means that all the injustice you see is going to one day stop. For Christ will bring down his holy justice as the great judge. He will ensure that all that is wrong will be made right. And oh, that is a great comfort because we know that while it may seem that wickedness prospers for a time, nothing will escape the fire of Christ's judgment. He will defend his people and he will deliver them from all unrighteousness and all injustice. There is a great reckoning coming. As I heard an old preacher say, don't worry about this world. I read the last chapter and we win. And I would add to that, we win because Jesus wins, and he has won. And so we can be confident to press on in enduring faith despite persecution or tribulation or sufferings because we know all of that will end under the great righteous judgment of Christ our judge. But finally, to have an enduring faith, we must see Christ as the ruler of his church. And we see this portrayed in verse 16. In his right hand, he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the shining sun in full strength. Now, a right hand in the Bible is always a symbol of authority, like that of a king, a hand of power. And in Jesus' right hand, we're told that he holds seven stars. Well, what do those stars symbolize? Well, again, if we jump to verse 20, we find out what they are. Jesus says they are the angels to the seven churches. You're like, okay, well, what are the angels then to the churches? Well, there's two primary interpretations that Bible scholars come to when they approach this, and it's possible they both could be right. Um, well, the first is that the angels represent the pastors of the seven historical churches to whom this letter is being sent. And the reason people come to that is because the Greek word for angel, angelos, at its root simply means a messenger who is sent uh, with a message. And that is what pastors, that is what elders do. They bring the message of the gospel to God's people. And that seems to make sense considering how there will be these seven letters that we're going to come into beginning in Revelation 2 addressed to the angels of each church. But the problem with that view is that nowhere else in Revelation 
or any of John's writings for that matter, do you ever find pastors or elders referred to as angels? They always speak of angelic beings that God has created to carry out special tasks in his kingdom. And that is most likely what these angels are. These angels are representative of the churches themselves. And so the way that John writes us then is that when the angels are addressed, the church them, it, churches they represent are addressed as well. And that would include the entire church, pastors and elders and everybody who is part of it. So the entire church then is under the authority of Jesus Christ as ruler. But here's another question. Why use a heavenly being to portray Christ's authority over the church? Why use these angels? Because it is a reminder that the church on earth is only one dimension of the church. You see, we belong to Christ's kingdom, which is a spiritual kingdom, a heavenly kingdom. We are united to the great multitude of God's people from all ages, brought together by His grace. As that wonderful hymn, The Church's One Foundation, declares, we have mystic sweet communion with those whose rest is one. So Christ is our ruler here at Christ Church Ann Arbor, but he is the ruler of the church at large. He is a ruler of those who have already received the full reward of the gospel. They know what it really means to rest in Christ. And they've gone on before us. You see, we're part of something far bigger than just the earthly expression of the church. We are part of the heavenly church of God. When we worship together this morning on the Lord's Day, we are worshiping as one church with Red Tree and with First Presbyterian and Bad Axe and University Reformed and Lansing and with our Baptist brothers and with 242 and any church where the gospel of Christ proclaims we are worshiping together as one church, our Lord, our ruler. But not only that, we are worshiping together with the hosts of heaven. We are singing the praises that the angels sing and that those who have gone on before us and the Apostle Paul and Moses and David this day are singing the praises to the Lord Jesus Christ, the same praises we are singing. That's the church we're part of. That should encourage you when you think about tribulation. We're not alone. And so enduring faith comes when we have a true vision of who Jesus is, when we see him as our ruler, his word is like a sword, John says. And what is a sword but a symbol of power and a might? It can wage war, but it also brings peace. It brings justice. And the brightness of the sun also reflects his authority. It is full of power and strength. You cannot look into the sun. It burns your eyes. How much more can one look into the glory of Jesus Christ? That is who our ruler is. And so as our heavenly priest, our final judge, and the ruler of his church, he gives us this vision that we must see. And when we do, it creates a faith that will endure. But not only do we see Christ. 
as he wants to be seen with this true vision. But in closing, we also hear him as he speaks to us. And we see his trustworthy word. What is that word? Well, in this text, it's very simple. It is fear not. John writes, verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid a right hand on me saying, fear not, for I am the first and the last. You see, a true vision of Christ, when you see him as your heavenly priest, as the judge of all, as a great ruler, it will cause you to tremble. It will cause you to fear. But there's a difference in the way believers fear him and unbelievers. You see, as a Christian, as one who knows Christ, when we fall before him in fear, we fall towards him in worship. But unbelievers, those who reject him, fall back away from him in terror. And unlike those who refuse to acknowledge him as the Christ, as their Lord, as their Savior, who fall back into the dirt. Jesus does not leave us who know him in the dirt. He lays a hand on us, just as he did to John. And he says, fear not, and he lifts you up. Fear not. Even though you may face troubles and tribulations in this life, fear not. Fear not, even though this world hates you, fear not because I am always with you. I, who am the first and the last, the sovereign Lord of all history, who has purposed and planned all things for your good, fear not, I am with you. And he says, fear not even death itself, because Jesus, who had died, is now alive forevermore. And he says, I have snatched from death's hand the very keys of the grave and of hell itself signifying that he has all authority even over death and the penalty of our sins, which is eternal judgment before God. And he unlocks those chains and he frees us from the penalty of our sins and sets us free through his own death and resurrection. So brothers and sisters, this world is troubling. There is tribulation. You say, yeah, I know, but fear not. Because your priest, the great judge, the ruler of the church is with you. Look to him and live. Look and fear not. Look and press on in faithfulness and endurance to the mission that God has called us to as a church. To be the light of the world. Shining forth the light of the gospel for all to see. Look to Christ who stands with you amidst the candlesticks of his church. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. We're thankful for this vision of our Savior who has died and risen and now lives forevermore, who has broken the chains of death and of hell, so that united to him by faith alone, we enjoy the riches of his grace. And we are able to stand before the tribulations that are come our way. Help us in this earthly pilgrimage to be faithful 
to keep on in our faith, to keep serving and obeying and following Christ, knowing that one day all this tribulation, all these things that burden our souls will fall away, and all that will remain is the joy of being in the presence of our Lord forevermore. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.